I'm really grateful to Cole for being here when I couldn't be last week. We were in Missouri checking on the folks, and um, um, Cole's just the best, and I just love having him here when I can't be here. And uh, now he, but I gave him a really hard assignment. I said, "Okay, I've been in Zephaniah, and we're going to be in Romans, and I need you to bridge that gap." And he said, "What?" And uh, and he was on vacation uh, when when we talked about this. So uh, anyway, that, that's just great. And um, so I want you to go to Romans two which is where we're going to be today. I think he kind of covered a little bit of Romans 1 last week, and that's where we'll be. The story's told that when Queen Elizabeth II, now that's the reigning queen, 75 years, you know, that, that whole thing that, she's, that they've celebrated in England. Uh, when she was a young girl, her father, King George VI, told her to do something, and her answer to him was, I am a princess. And she said, and I will do as I please. Her father said to her, yes, you are a princess. And that's why, for the rest of your life, you will never do simply as you please. And that's great advice. Privilege brings not just honor or power, but responsibility. The greater the privilege, the greater the responsibility. Now, Paul is reminding his, his readers, uh, these are believers, Jewish Christians, they from, kind of have a Jewish background. He's reminding them of this truth that they have a tremendous responsibility because of what they've been given and what they know and have known. And they've kind of spurned that privilege. Now, uh, I want to review here. Uh, Cole probably didn't do this last week because he, you know... Um, um, he he kind of had his own agenda of things to do and, and w- was doing what, what I needed him to do too. But let's review. Are you still working on 2 Corinthians 5.17? Can we do it together? We're going to do the reference and say the verse and then do the reference again. You ready? 2 Corinthians 5.17. If anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old is gone, the new has come. 2 Corinthians 517. So many of you were with me on that. This is fun. We're going to keep working on this for a few more weeks. So if you haven't started, go to 2 Corinthians 517 and, um, and do it in the NIV. Now that's going to probably get me in trouble, but that way, uh, that's what I memorized it in. So that's where we're going to go with that. And it's very simple and we can do it all together. Okay, so uh, we'll do this week by week and kind of, kind of renew it. Now let me give you a little bit of background of where we are. Cole gave you some last week, but as the, as the Apostle Paul writes to um, the church in Rome. His agenda here is to demonstrate that, God's, that the gospel is God's power for salvation for both the Jew and the Gentile. I was listening to an apologist this week, and, and he was talking about how the gospel is, is the good news. It is the good news. But to some, the gospel won't be good news because of what it conveys. So this idea here is that the gospel is God's power for salvation, not just for the Jew, but for the Gentile. Uh, Both of them had failed to submit to the God who created them and revealed himself to them. Uh, Cole probably dealt a little bit last week with Romans 1. And uh, if you'll go with me there just for a minute, I want to remind us of a great truth. I'm going to begin in verse 18. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven 
against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth and unrighteousness. Because that which is known about God is evident within them, for God made it evident to them. For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes, his eternal power, and his divine nature have clearly been seen, being understood through what has been made, so that they are without excuse. The, the first chapter of this little book tells us that those who claim to not know God have no excuse. Isn't that interesting? Because God has been revealed in creation. Now that's kind of the tone that he sets here in Romans 1. So in Romans 2, uh, in Romans 1 we're going to learn here that even though the Gentiles had not received the special revelation from God that God had given to the Israelite nation, the Bible, the Word of God, uh, and prophets and all that, even though they hadn't received that, the Gentiles were nonetheless fully responsible for their rebellion against God because God had sufficiently revealed himself and his will to them in creation itself. Now, he's going to shift in chapter 2 um, to talk about Israel, what they received, which was so much better. And he's going to talk about it. He's going to remind them a little bit of their history and Jewish history that you and I know is a history of God revealing himself to them and them rejecting his revelation and kind of wanting to do their own thing. So as we shift into chapter 2, we're going to see a little bit more and more of that. Now, let's go, if we can, to verse 17, chapter 2. Uh, Steve Blair, would you read down through verse 20 for us? What translation are you reading from, Steve? It, the old NIV? Um, I, I like it because it used the word brag in there. Um, my, my translation uses the word boast in verse, um, um, in verse 18. You rely upon the law and boast in God, and you're said what in verse 17? You brag about your relationship with God. Now, that's a really dangerous place to be. The word I want you to put in your blank here is the word confidence. The issue here is misplaced confidence. Now, when Paul begins this verse, this kind of section of Scripture, he's going to say you, and he's, it's kind of a finger-pointing you. It's a personal you. Um, Paul's going to call them out as individuals. So when, when he's writing this, it's not you plural, it's you, it's you singular, and he's saying you. I'm, I'm talking to you now. You ever read the Bible and, it, and you kind of recognize that the Bible is saying, uh, God is talking to me here. Uh, by the way, that happens to me nearly every day. It should happen to me every day. And that's kind of the way it should be. This is not about, and as I read this, I've got to be careful not to think, well, this was for you know, the first century uh, Jewish Christian who really had it wrong. It's for me too. None of us have the ability 
to, to brag about our relationship with God. And Paul calls them out on this. There's a misplaced pride. And they're saying in a sense here, at least we're not like them. Okay? Doyle, you've never done that, have you? At least I'm not like him. Okay? I'm in a real dangerous spot anytime I kind of claim that. At least I'm not like them. Now it's clear in verse 18 that living by the law here provides a better way of living than the pagan world. Now, the truth is they could say, we know the law, we know it teaches us the right way. Um, uh, they kind of have a claim to be part of the in-group because they've gotten the revelation from God. And, and you and I know that the Bible in the Old Testament is going to teach us a better way than the peoples around them. That's why it was given to them. And to prepare them for the coming of the Messiah. But what they do with that is the issue. In verse 19, here's another word. I've said confidence, misplaced confidence. The other word I'm going to use here in verse 19 is the word arrogance. There's an arrogance depicted here. Let's look at verse 19 again. And uh, you are confident that you yourself are a guide to the blind, a light to those who are in darkness. Now the idea here is uh, that the people on the outside of the family of faith, them... They recognize them as being blind. They are blind. And they've put themselves in the position of being a guide to the blind. Now, by the way, there are two things that are really important that we catch here. First of all, Israel was always supposed to be. The nation of Israel, was. there were lots of safeguards and protections of them in, in not intermarrying with the outside Gentile world and all that. There were reasons for that. But they were always to be a light to the Gentiles. From the very beginning, the family of faith was to be a light to the Gentiles, to lead them to faith in the only true God. If you don't believe me, read the story again in the book of Joshua of the prostitute Rahab. She had seen the light. Hearing, just in hearing the stories of the family of faith. The, the nation was always to have been a light to the Gentiles. Not in, just in the special revelation that God had given them in the word of God and in prophets. And in his acting on their behalf in history. But in the way they treat the Gentiles. In the way that they respond to them. But they really had not been that. But here they're claiming we are the light to the blind. But what happens here, um, this arrogance causes them to become blind to who they really are. I walked in this morning. I'd evidently cut myself shaving a little bit. And I was blind to that. And I felt like my mother was dressing me when I walked in the building this morning. She's you know, doing that deal. Okay. Isn't it true that occasionally I'm blind to what everybody else sees? <laughs> Did your mom give you a thumb bath when you were a kid? Mm. I kind of got that treatment when I got to church this morning. All right. 
Uh, John? I have a question. Don't you feel like the leaders felt that by living under the law, they could judge men more than living under grace? Wasn't that the whole problem? It, it certainly is. I hope you heard John's question. Those living under the law felt like they were in better position than those who, who were just living under grace. The, the point we're going to make here, this is going to be interesting, because in chapter 1, Jesus is saying, Paul is saying, the Gentiles have no excuse. By the end of chapter 2, the Jew has no excuse either. In fact, they've been privileged. Now, so there's this issue of being blind, even though I don't know that I'm blind. How bad is that, you know? Go with me. I put the references. Matthew 23. Let's go to a couple of passages because Jesus, this is kind of the idea that causes Jesus to indict them. Um, uh, Paul kind of picks up on really a, a, a messianic theme, a, a Jesus theme here. Matthew 23. I want somebody to read verse 16 and then jump down to read verse 24. Matthew 23. Somebody got those? The idea here is you're going to take a, an excursion to the bottom of the Grand Canyon. And you hire a guide who's a very expensive guide. And when, you, when he shows up, he's got his donkey in tow and a seeing eye dog. I'm probably going to ask for somebody else, right? This is perilous, right? Jesus calls them blind guides. How useful is a blind guide? They have a claim to the truth. They have a claim to this special knowledge, and they've received it. But they themselves are blind. Wow. It causes Jesus to kind of indict them here. Now, verse 20 is going to look on the surface, and I put this word in here before I kind of dug even deeper. It's going to appear on the surface to be a caution here for teachers of the young. He's going to give them kind of um, um, several things he's dealing with here, but among them he says, um, you're a corrector of the foolish, a teacher of the immature, having in the law the embodiment of knowledge and of the truth. Now, when, when he says here, uh, be careful because you're a teacher of the young, one of, one of the things I want, to be, I want to be careful of noticing here is that um, it's not really talking about, he's kind of tongue-in-cheek when he says this. You think you're guiding the young, he says. So it seems. Really, Paul is describing spiritual condescension. Well, if you were like me, then what's, how would you define condescension? Do I? I think, you're think you're better and say it in some way or another. Condescension. Um, remember Bob Newhart? <laughs> this is a great Bob Newhart story. Uh, now, this is for those, I wish, I wish uh, Sherman were here today because this is about country music. You ready? He says, I don't like country music. This is Bob Newhart. I don't like country music, but I don't mean to denigrate those who do. And for the people who like country music, denigrate means put down. <laughs> Is that good? Is that good? 
I don't mean to denigrate. And by the way, denigrate means this, yeah? That's condescension. But we've got this spirit of condescension here. He's describing. Um, you think you're a teacher of the young. And literally, they, were, they had this kind of highbrow view of their own spirituality. You're teachers of the young, he says. Condescending. By the way, I can't imagine something more heinous for those of us who are supposed to be guides to the blind. I can't imagine a more despicable position for those of us who are to be light to the Gentiles than to be condescending about that which I've received. That's kind of the story here. All right, so let's go on and talk about, we're going to go down to verse 21 here, and talk about um, their claim to be teachers, their claim to be leaders, their claim to be guides. John, would you read uh, 21, 22, and 23? He's going to ask a series of questions here that really is calling out their hypocrisy. I hate that word. What, what do you think of when you think of hypocrisy? What's that? Hypocrite. Okay, so what's a hypocrite, Bill? It, we all kind of recognize it, but let's articulate it a little bit. What's a hypocrite? Say one thing and do something else. Talk the talk, we don't want to talk. Okay, we're getting it. Literally, the word hypocrite in the original language means one who wears a mask. Isn't that interesting? That kind of fits it, doesn't it? Uh, it, it conveys with it. That you remember in, the, in um, old Greek plays, you know, that you'll see kind of depicted sometimes, they'll hold up, they've got a mask on a stick, and they're holding it in front while they're pretending to be someone they're not. That's a hypocrite. But the problem is, it's one thing... In the theater, it's an entirely different thing when we're talking about life, and we're talking about life that I'm supposed to have a special knowledge of because God has given me a special revelation, like the Israelites, the Jewish people. And yet there's this hypocrisy that he's calling out. Paul is going to call out their hypocrisy here with a series of rhetorical challenges. He's, he says here, claiming to be a teacher is one thing. But heeding one's own teaching is another. Sally, it's that tragic story of the school teacher who can't spell. You know? It just doesn't work. There's something out of whack. Okay? Now, and he's going to use these kind of questions here to deal with it. Look, look back at, at some of what John read here. Uh, I want to read it to you from, from uh, my translation here. Um, you, who, um, um, you who teach another, do you not teach yourself? You who preach that one shall not steal, do you steal? You who say that one should not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? You who abhor idols, do you rob temples? Now, the idea here is um, he's kind of dealing with uh, stealing 
but it's kind of a, a kind of a different um, twist on the idea of stealing. But stealing, lust, idolatry, all come from an unchanged heart. I, I read to this this week. If knowing doesn't lead to obeying, it is of no value. Would somebody get, take a trip for us back to Jeremiah? A couple of couple of. Jeremiah passages we need here. But Jeremiah 7, somebody read 9, 10, and 11. Anybody go in there? Jeremiah 7, back in the Old Testament, kind of in the right middle of the Old Testament. Jeremiah 7, verse 9, 10, and 11. Jeremiah's going to kind of deal with it here. Interesting, he's talking about those who think they're in a good place, but they're saying one thing and doing another. And he said, no, you're not in a good place. Mike, um, Jeff and I have talked about this for 20 years. But it's the idea, of the question is not how many Bible studies I attend. Can you hear your son saying this? The question is not how many Bible studies I attend. And it's not. When I'm looking at what I need to know about you, I'm going to look at what evidence I see of what's going on in those Bible studies. It's not how many Bible studies I attend. It's not how much I know. It's what I'm going to do with what I know that matters. And he's basically calling out saying, you're falling way short here. The issue is a heart condition. Now I'm going to let you answer Verse 23. What is it that they're doing to dishonor God? Do you catch it in verse 23? Sorry? You dishonor God by disobedience. Breaking the law here, it says. Um, it's kind of interesting. How do I, am I breaking the law? It's not, it's, it's not they're not reading the word. They're doing that. It's not they're not hearing it. They've heard it for generations. It's what am I doing it with it? That's the issue. So how do they dishonor God? By not obeying. Now, as we go to verse 24 and 25, uh, the Bible here, Paul's going to talk about a really sad result that's going to come out of all of this. And um, um, he's going to deal here with... Um, uh, kind of, if you keep doing this the way you're doing it, here's what, here's how it's going to turn out. Would somebody read verse 24 and 25? Now, he's quoting here a passage from Isaiah 52, actually about verse 5. Because Isaiah was dealing with this in his day too. And he's basically saying here that 
Israel's disobedience, the Jewish people's disobedience, is really giving the Gentile world, and I'm going to use a, a well-placed word here. This is not a biblical word, but it's a word that I want to use to describe what's going on. If they're not careful, their disobedience gives the Gentile world an excuse to reject God. Now, I quickly want to hearken back to chapter 1 because the Bible says they are without excuse. Paul has already said they're without excuse, but he's kind of dealing with this thing here. You're causing the Gentile world to dishonor God, not because of what God's doing, but what you are, from what you are. It's a pretty, pretty serious indictment here. I read this week about, you know, we've read a lot about scandals in the religious world, in the, in the Christian world. Um, when I mentioned names like Jim Baker, which, by the way, I saw him on TV one day last week. Jim Baker, when I mentioned Ted Haggard, um, Jimmy Swaggart, we can't remember all of those kind of things that really brought disrepute on the Christian world, uh, uh, within the Gentile world, we could say. But I read a story this week about a lady by the name of Amy Simple McPherson. Anybody heard of her? I had never heard of her. Uh, Literally from back in the 1920s. Her notoriety was that uh, it resulted in a broad, it was so much that it resulted in a Broadway musical titled Scandalous, The Life and Trials of Amy Simple McPherson. And uh, she was an evangelist. Um, One synopsis of the play states that she was the most world's first media superstar evangelist whose passion for saving souls equaled her passion for making headlines. And make headlines, she did. She was divorced more than once. Quite a scandalous thing in the first half of the 20th century. She was accused of lying. She built a 5,000-seat megachurch in Los Angeles. And in 1926, she was thought to have drowned in the Pacific Ocean, then rumored to have been kidnapped for $500,000 ransom, then strangely appeared to be walking alone out of a Mexican desert into Douglas, Arizona. She knew how to use the media, and they loved her for it. Her followers idolized her, but many other Christians saw her as an embarrassment to the faith. The world enjoys finding cracks in the facade of Christianity. This is especially true in regard to Christian leaders, isn't it? I find this just intriguing that this happened back in the 1920s. You know, it sounds like something that would have happened last week. The issue here is that Israel's disobedience gives the Gentile world an excuse to say, if it's not working for them, then why would I want to try it? An excuse to reject God. And then he invokes the idea of circumcision, which was always intended not just to be an outward symbol that stands for itself, but it was to be an outward symbol of what was already in the heart. I think of those who might today, I can't imagine doing this. can't imagine the hypocrisy in it. But imagine if, if I went to somebody who was not living a Christian lifestyle and said, are you a Christian? They said, yes, I was baptized on July 20th. Baptism was to be an outward representation of something that already happened in the heart. And, and the truth is, maybe there was no connection there. There was no life change. This was all about what's happening in the heart. Circumcision was to be something that indicated this is who you are. You've made a covenant with God. 
my people, my family, have all made a covenant with God. And this is one of the ways that I'm recognizing that. By the way, Paul's going to have a real issue with circumcision. He's going to call out the, the abuses of it and the problems of it several times in his writing. Okay, let's go to verse 26. John, can I get you to go back to 26 and read down through 29? He's going to go down this path. It's a wonderful path. And this is kind of a Pauline, this is a Paul introduction, kind of an invention. The idea of circumcision of the heart. And that's required, he's going to say, not a circumcision of the flesh. Now, Paul has been, he's going to make a shift here starting in verse 26. He's been talking about the one who claims to be in, but doesn't really act like it. Okay? The one who claims to be in. I'm part of the elite group. I have got the revelation of God. And I can trace back my family heritage all the way back to Abraham. I'm in. But I don't act like I'm in. That's who he's been going after. Now he's going to make a monumental shift here in verse 26 and begin to describe the one who has really no claim of membership. A person completely steeped in the Gentile world and yet who has somehow got it. I want to give you an illustration of this. Go with me, everybody, if you will. Just turn back one book to your left to the book of Acts and go with me to verse chapter 10. The book of Acts chapter 10. We're going to meet a guy that, that Paul would describe here in, in so many terms. Um, um, uh, this, this guy was a contemporary of Paul's. Now, according to Scripture, I can't recall a time when Paul and Cornelius met. Uh, Cornelius was kind of a guy that was in Peter's life. But they may have met at some point. But it makes me wonder uh, if, if at least you and I can think of Cornelius we deal with verse 26 and 27 here where Paul's talking about circumcision of the heart. He's, he's going to say here that a guy like Cornelius was not circumcised on the outside, but he's been circumcised on the inside. Look at chapter 10. I want to read just the first couple of verses. Now there was a man at Caesarea named Cornelius. Listen to the description of him. He was a centurion of what was called the Italian cohort. Now does that mean he was Jewish or Gentile? He couldn't be more Gentile. Had he been circumcised? Likely not. Most definitely not. He was a Gentile's Gentile. He was a Roman's Roman. He was on the inside of the Roman world. He couldn't have been more Gentile. But look at the continued description. A devout man. <laughs> By the way, if you want to put that on my tombstone, I'd love that. A devout man. And one who feared God with all his household. Wow. 
and gave many alms to the Jewish people and prayed to God continually. Does it sound like Cornelius is in or out? Why do we think that? Is it because he's prayed a prayer and uh, acknowledged some things? No, it's because of the evidences of his life. It's kind of the guy that Paul's describing here back in Romans 2. The one who has no claim of membership. But he puts the Jewish people of his day to shame. How? Because he's living the life. John, he's walking the walk. Not just talking the talk. And by the way, the, I think Cornelius' story is one of the beautiful stories of, of the New Testament. Certainly the book of Acts. And I think it's wonderful to see how Cornelius, all he needed was just to be taught a little bit and be baptized because he already had the foundation in place. He already knew. He was, he was the poster boy for Romans 1.20. He knew it. God had spoken to his heart and he'd responded in the appropriate ways. He describes here, Paul's describing one who has no claim of membership but really is in and then verse 28 and 29 that John read for us just a little bit ago, it's the idea that being God's child is an inward transaction. Who I am on the inside will show on the outside. Now go with me one more passage of Scripture. I want you to go with me to Matthew 23. And I want you to hear how Jesus describes this problem that Paul is dealing with. Matthew 23, would somebody read verse 27 and 28? The words are in red, and they are an absolute blistering indictment. Come on, bring it, Jesus. I mean, you can tell us the truth. Did you go through 28, Mark? Wow. On the inside? On the outside, I'm doing it all right. On the inside, he says, all I'm smelling is putrid death. Wow. Can you imagine, by the way, the Savior of the world, the one who... who uh, yeah, about whom was said, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. Saying this in the flesh and being the receiver of this and thinking, is he talking about me? <laughs> yeah, he was talking about you. The issue here is that being God's child is an inward transaction. So I'm going to ask you the question to kind of apply it. Has God changed you on the inside? Because my... My belief is that it's going to show on the outside if he's really changed you on the inside. Here's what the Bible says. You don't have to repeat it with me this time. But he says, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has gone, the new has come. Now, God confronted what was inside of Cain that resulted in him killing his brother Abel. Remember that? Read about it in chapter 4 of the Bible. God told Samuel when he was looking for a king to anoint. God told Samuel, he said, look at the inside, not the outside. 
and he picked the least likely candidate on the outside. It just seems like he's being really consistent here from the Old Testament to the New Testament. When choosing a leader, he says, look at the inside. By the way, I don't even have to let you apply that, do I right now? You do with that what you will. But if you want to go back and read uh, 1 Samuel, eh, chapter 17, 18 in there somewhere, you're going to see where they're trying to choose a king and Samuel says, don't look at the outside, look at the inside. It seems to be kind of a universal principle here. The Gentiles in chapter 1 were without excuse. You remember that? In chapter 2, we're learning that the Jew didn't keep the law. And so we're asking the question here, so then who can be saved? We need to hang there for about a week. If the Gentile can't get, can't get there because they didn't get the law, and they haven't responded because of what's been around them. And if the Jewish person can't get there by claiming, I've got the law, then are we all cooked? The answer is yes. And chapter 3 is going to help us deal with it. I hope you'll come back and help me deal with this, okay? <laughs> chapter 3. I love you. It's great to see you. See you next week. <laughs>